you will notice uh, that last week we were in Matthew 28 and this week we're in Matthew 24 which means that Doug is chronologically challenged we there's actually uh, there's method in my madness we are going back to to 20 chapter 24 uh, because it is a great transition from this series that has been in the Gospel of Matthew to the series that will begin in two weeks uh, in, in uh, Revelation. And it has everything to do with the city of Jerusalem. Now, if you've, it, you, you might have noticed that this city on a hill has been the theme of this series, even though we've been in multiple books. So the City on a Hill series began with our study of Ezra and Nehemiah and all the corresponding prophets and histories that go with that, City on a Hill continued into the Gospel of Matthew, and City on a Hill will continue into Revelation. Now, what is it that ties all of that together? Well, it is the City on the Hill, which is Jerusalem. Jerusalem ties all of these pieces together. It is the centerpiece, the common bond that is the great city that encapsulates the hope of all Israel. Now, my family and I, uh, for m most of the time that we have, uh, my wife and I have been together, have had the privilege of living in proximity to some really great cities. I didn't grow up around the city, but uh, since we've been married, we've always kind of been near one and even when we moved here we chose uh, this area because of its proximity to St. Louis. Uh, I love St. Louis. We were there yesterday. I love, I love the, all there's, there's so many things to do there. I love the, the opportunities. I love the diversity, uh, the ethnicity, the structures, the history. I really love St. Louis but we all know St. Louis has its problems. It's, it's got some pretty serious problems. And, uh, uh, you know, for, for all their effort, they can't seem to hire one decent politician in the lot to get them out of any of it. But it, it's a city with some pretty, pretty serious issues. But I love that city. I don't necessarily want to live there, but I, but I love the city. Now, I don't know that I'm really particularly the type to live in a city. I am a country boy at heart. I was raised a country boy, which is a nice way of saying I'm basically a hick. Somewhere in between a rube and a redneck is a hick, and that's, that's who I am. And I have worked very hard over the years to sort of overcome the limitations of being a hick. I, I read a lot. Uh, I went to some very excellent universities. And I think of myself as a reasonably well-cultured person. 
But in the end of things, what that means is I'm a well-read, well-educated, well-cultured hick. You need to understand that most of the people in Judea are rural. They, they don't live in the city. Now, the city of Jerusalem was a pretty significant city, and so there, there were uh, perhaps 100,000 people who lived there uh, on average. But most of the people were agrarian. They, they raised crops, they raised livestock, that's what they, they were dependent on those things, and so they didn't live in the city, but the city is the center of their whole culture. And three times a year, they're traveling to Jerusalem to be in the city in order to be near the temple and celebrate these great festivals of God. The city is everything to them. Uh, it, it is the penultimate city on a hill. And penultimate is, you know, like a $10 word that basically means almost. It, 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 because Jerusalem is meant to be the city on the hill, but to Jerusalem as we have seen it, as we have known it to this point, is the not quite Jerusalem that it's meant to be. It's the next to the last Jerusalem. And it spends most of its history being the next to the last Jerusalem. And so Jesus says about Jerusalem at the end of chapter 23 in Matthew, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In, in other words, Jesus lamented the failure of Jerusalem to live up to its name. Jerusalem is a name, it comes from two words, Jeru and Shalom. Shalom, you might be familiar with, because it means peace. More specifically, it, it means a wholeness, a completeness, a perfection that leads to peace. And Jeru just means a city. So it's the city of peace, the city of Shalom. Uh, in this, Jerusalem exists more as an ideal than it does as a reality. Because even in our current context, we don't necessarily think of Jerusalem as a city of peace. And over its history, it has very rarely been a city of peace. It has been a place of nearly constant conflict. And as Jesus says about the city, you're the city that murders your prophets. Every time I send you somebody who's going to help you get back where you need to be, you kill them off. That's, that's, the city, that's the city of peace that we're talking about. Uh, there's a historian by the name of Eric Klein. He counted it all up, and he says that the Jerusalem was destroyed at least twice, besieged 23 times, attacked an additional 52 times, and captured and recaptured 44 times. That's not a very peaceful history. That's kind of crazy. I mean, it is one of the oldest cities in existence, it has been on the map for a long, long time, but still, that's a crazy amount of conflict for a city that's supposed to be a city of peace. Why is this city so important? Why, why are we still fighting over Jerusalem today? Why have the nations been fighting over Jerusalem all this time? We've got three major world religions that are constantly trying to figure out 
how to slice and dice Jerusalem to make sense of all of this. Why is it so important? And why is it so important in Scripture? Why is it such a focus? Well, let's do a little bit of history here. The very first mention of the city of Jerusalem associates the city with Melchizedek. Now, you remember Melchizedek? He is this strange priest, this priest of the Most High God who shows up in the story of Abraham. Abraham goes and fights this battle, gathers his own men and goes and fights this battle and is victorious and he comes back and all of a sudden this Melchizedek shows up and Abraham recognizes him as a priest of the Most High God. In fact, he tithes to him. Gives him a tenth of everything that he, he's uh, plundered in this victory. Gives it to Melchizedek. He recognizes that Melchizedek is this high priest. We know very little about Melchizedek from that passage. He just sort of shows up and then disappears again. And we don't really know that much about him until the writer of Hebrews tells us more. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ himself is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So the priesthood in Israel is not officially created until the time of Moses, right? So it's Aaron who is the, the patriarch of the entire priesthood. You had to be in the, in the tribe of Levi. You had to be in the household of Aaron in order to be a priest. It's passed down. Uh, uh, it's, it's a hereditary honor. Jesus is not a part of that tribe. So the writer of Hebrews says he is our high priest, but he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, who's got no family tree. It just sort of shows up out of nowhere. But more than that, it also says Melchizedek was the king of Salem. Well, Salem is that same word, shalom. He's the king of shalom. Shalom, Salem, is the predecessor to Jerusalem. So the region of Salem will eventually become the city of Salem or Jerusalem. So here we have Melchizedek who is by title high priest of God, high priest of the most high God and the king of Shalom, the king of peace. The Hebrews tells us Jesus is high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We also know that Jesus is once the prince of peace, now the king of peace. And so there's this mysterious connection between uh, Melchizedek and Jesus, and that connection takes us back to the very earliest mention of the city of Jerusalem. And it doesn't really appear again, at least not by that name, until we are reading about Joshua and his battles and different things that are going on in the in the new holy land after they finally enter into the promised land and at that point in history the city of Jerusalem is occupied by a group of people called the Jebusites and it's not until the rise of King David that these Jebusites are defeated King David conquered the city and he made the city his capital it's an interesting little fact sometimes we miss this that's that Saul when Saul was king uh, he, he didn't have Jerusalem as his capital. That doesn't start until David. So David conquers the city. He takes it from the Jebusites. 
He sends the Jebusite king outside the city. He allows him to live and, and to uh, continue to trade and, and interact with the people there. But he defeats the city. He makes it his capital. And from this point forward, Jerusalem is associated with the Davidic kingdom, with the line of David, from which Jesus will eventually arise. But its spiritual heritage goes even deeper than that because Jerusalem is also the place that's set aside for the temple of God to exist. And here's kind of how that works. David really, really, really wants to build the temple. But God says he can't because he's a warrior. He has spilt way too much blood. And so he wants that honor to go to a peaceful king, a king who has a peaceful reign. That king will ultimately be his son Solomon, and Solomon will finally build the temple. What David is allowed to do is to collect all of the resources that will be needed in order to build the temple. One of those resources is a place to build it. David is directed through prophecy. A prophecy comes to him saying, this is, this, is this is the spot that you, you need to acquire. Now, the interesting thing is, the spot is the uh, threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Arana the Jebusite is the former Jebusite king who's been ousted and now lives just outside of the city of Jerusalem. And he owns this threshing floor, floors, place for processing grain. And it's on kind of a flat space that's just above the city of Jerusalem. That space is at a place called Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is purchased as the site of the altar and eventually the temple of God. Right? So just like in Ezra, remember when we read in Ezra, the people are coming back to the city and they're going to rebuild everything. The very first thing they built is the altar. That's the very thir first thing that gets built on this site. And David is actually allowed to build that. So David builds an altar on this site, the threshing floor of Aronah, Mount Moriah, builds the altar, and the people are allowed to start making sacrifices. Later on, he's going to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. Guess where he's going to bring it? Mount Moriah. And finally, King Solomon, during his glorious and peaceful reign, is going to build a very ornate, very beautiful temple on that spot. Now, the significance of Mount Moriah is not just that it's adjacent to and above the ancient city, but it ties us once again back to the story of Abraham. From Genesis 22 and 2 says, Then God said, Take your son, you remember this one, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. That's so cool. I mean, we know how that story ends, right? Abram, Abraham tells his son, he says, you know, God's going to provide the ram, even though he knows he's actually there, supposed to, he doesn't understand what's happening, but he's faithful to God. His son is spared. God does provide a ram. All of that happens on Mount Moriah, which will not be the site of the altar for another five centuries, except that God already has the plan. This is why I love Scripture, folks. 
500 years prior to any of these events, God identifies Jerusalem as the place of sacrifice, the place of the temple, and the home of the king. David captures the city. He makes it his capital. Solomon eventually builds the temple there. This is the start of something really big, except that it isn't. It's just not. Everything that it's supposed to be never quite materializes. It never kind of really comes to fruition. The kingdom era that is to follow David, all of these kings of Israel and Judea, is not very shalom. As a matter of fact, it's a mess. It is a disaster. And through most of that time, the people are practicing idolatry, the kings are unfaithful. None of it is working the way that it's supposed to be. All of this glory that is supposed to be Jerusalem is tainted by this terrible history. And of course, eventually, because of God's judgment against Israel, the city ultimately falls to Babylon. So here's the way this goes. This great city, this great opportunity, this city of Shalom. God gives the people a city. He gives them a kingdom. He gives them a temple. And he gives them a covenant. And they make such a mess of all of it for such a long time that he takes away everything except for the covenant. God's not going to remove his promise. And so the covenant still exists. He still has this covenant that says the descendants of Abraham are going to be this mighty nation, and through them I'm going to bless the whole world. And on the strength, on the bond of that covenant, God has a plan that he is going to return the people, a remnant of the people, to Jerusalem so that they can rebuild the temple and rebuild the city and start preparing once again for its great future glory. And of course, that's where we began this whole journey together. Ezra and Nehemiah chronicle the reconstruction of the city of Jerusalem. And there is in that story a great and deep hope prophecies of Daniel tell them all these things about this Messiah King who's going to come and everything about this great city is, is finally going to be all that it is intended to be, all that, all that it's designed for. But that hope, again, is never completely satisfied. It's always frustrated. The whole history of Jerusalem is like this. It's like magnificence interrupted. So much potential, so much glory, and yet it never seems to quite come to fruition. I think about, I, I, you know, I really love movies, except when I don't. I am, I'm crazy about cinema, raised my kids to all be crazy about cinema, but here's the thing, uh, there's a lot of really crummy movies. I, uh, I love cinema on the basis of the handful of really excellent films that have come out over the history of cinema. And this is sort of what 
motivates me. But I don't know if you ever like scroll through your streaming service, Amazon or Netflix or whatever streaming service you have, scroll through there looking for a good movie. One of the things you immediately encounter, even without watching them, is that there are thousands of terrible movies for every good movie. Right? Uh, I, I watched a movie <laughs> a few weeks ago out of a terrible morbid curiosity. I, I kind of couldn't not watch this. It was a movie called Velocipaster. <laughs> I kid you not. <laughs> this is a real movie. Velocipaster. This guy, this priest, sees his parents killed in a car fire and loses his faith, goes off to China, walks around China, and then in, somehow inherits this mysterious ability to turn himself into a dinosaur, and he becomes a vigilante dinosaur. The only good thing that I can say about this movie is that it does not take itself seriously. All right? In fact, it, it was... It, it was a joke when it was made. It was made for about $29,000, and it really shows. It's just, you know. But here, here's the thing. Bad movies are easy to find. Bad films are easy. And, and right now, it seems like Hollywood can't make anything unless they're trying to indoctrinate us in one of their wacky world views. And so it's even harder to find anything that's worth watching. But here's the deal. Jerusalem is this grand city in search of an epic ending that never seems to come. It's like we're waiting for its greatness. We're waiting for that piece of uh, cinema, cinematographical brilliance, you know, the, the, where the, the, the storyline and the characters, the acting, and all of the pieces come together, and you go, that is a game changer. But Jerusalem always sort of turns out to be a B-movie that nobody cares about. It never seems to come to fruition. And yet, I keep scrolling. I keep scrolling, looking, hoping that I'm going to stumble upon that gem that's worth watching. The people of Israel keep waiting. They keep looking. They keep thinking about Jerusalem, thinking at some point we've been promised at some point. I know it keeps falling short, but at some point, at some point history is going to stop churning out cheap sequels of something good and is actually going to give us the storyline that we've been waiting for. Jerusalem is a great story. It just needs the right ending, and it waits for centuries, for millennia, to have it. From the reconstruction to the expansion, there is this deep hope that the Messiah is going to show up and make everything right. He's going to write this story. He's going to make it work. Now we're in chapter 24 of Matthew and just a few chapters earlier, remember that Jesus comes into the city as its king. He comes in on a donkey as its king and at that point all of his followers are going, yes! This is it. This is what we've been waiting for. Here we are in chapter 24, and none of what they're expecting as it materializes. This great big nothing burger. 
Nothing. Jesus is not on the throne. Jesus isn't controlling the city. So, the, the, you know, he hasn't been crucified and resurrected at this point. We're backing up in the story, so they, they're still not sure what's happening. Jesus is walking out of the city with his disciples, and they point to the temple. And I think maybe they're, they're hoping that they can sort of rally him to the cause. Like, Jesus, isn't it about, about time for you to do your thing? Say, Jesus, look at these beautiful buildings. Look how gorgeous it all is. Look at this temple. It's magnificent. Herod did a really good job, even though he's a crummy person. He had a beautiful building project. Look at this temple. Jesus says to them in, in chapter 24, verse 2, he says, do you see all these things? He asked, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And so Jesus frustrated the disciples' assumptions about the city yet again. You think about this. From the time of Zerubbabel's temple, when Zerubbabel rebuilds a temple in the book of Ezra, they have been awaiting this messianic king. And they all assume that the city and the temple that they've built is preparation for that king's coming. Jesus says, nah, this temple and this city, it's going to be destroyed again because this city is only a placekeeper for something more glorious that I have in mind. Jerusalem throughout its history has been shalom in name only. It's been a shino. It's never lived up to, to its potential. It's never... It's never achieved this glory that everyone's waiting for. Abraham, we're told, wandered in the wilderness waiting on a city whose architect and builder would be God himself. But that's not the Jerusalem that we've known. We are promised a Jerusalem without walls, a Jerusalem where peace is real, where justice is real, the dwelling place of God, an absolutely perfect city. And I've lived near a number of cities at this point in my life, and none of them come anywhere close to perfect. But this one will. When God does it, finally does it, it will be perfect. And the temple that they're marveling at with all of Herod's impressive expansion doesn't mean much to Jesus. It's all coming down. Now, despite their disappointment, the disciples kind of take all of this in stride. They're, kinda, they're taken aback for sure, but then they start thinking, well, okay, you know, the temple's been destroyed before. Maybe he wants to rebuild it more like Solomon's temple, maybe like it was originally. It's all been destroyed before and rebuilt, so maybe, maybe what this means is that when he becomes king, all of it's going to be torn down, it's going to be rebuilt again. And so... In the next verse, Matthew 24, 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? See, the disciples equated the destruction of the temple with the coming of the king. They see them as the same event. And again, this is all before the, 
crucifixion, it's before the resurrection. They're still waiting for Jesus at any moment now to seize power. And Jesus is saying, well, the temple's going to be destroyed. And they say, oh, the temple's going to be destroyed. So that must be when it all happens. When the temple's destroyed, that's, that's when Jesus will finally uh, start his reign. And the, in context, th- we need to understand that one of the reasons this chapter has historically been so difficult and so controversial, so difficult for us to interpret the conversation and understand what's going on here, is that the disciples think they're asking a single question. A single question being, when are you going to start your reign and destroy the temple? Jesus knows that they're actually asking two questions. When will the temple be destroyed? And when will you return? He hasn't left yet, so they don't know that he still has to return. So it's a very confusing passage. But Jesus begins to answer them, understanding so much more than them, and yet not in some ways even trying to explain the complication. It says in verse 4, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus essentially starts talking about signs, and the signs point to a time of great trial. Jesus says there's going to be false messiahs, there's going to be wars, there's going to be famines, there's going to be disasters, and you're going to think, this is it, this is when Jesus comes. And Jesus says, but that's not it. He goes on, he says there's going to be persecution, there's going to be martyrdom, a lot of people are going to die for the cause. There's going to be a great turning away. There's going to be this terrible wickedness. The love of most people will grow cold, which sounds terrible. And at that point, you're going to think, okay, this must be when Jesus comes. And Jesus says, but that's still not it. But it's okay, he says. Because everyone who stands firm through all of this will be saved. And because of all this persecution, the gospel will reach the whole world. So it's okay. Not the way we think of okay, but certainly the way that Jesus looks at okay. Finally, he says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation. Now, this is not the first time we've heard this phrase, and it's not the first time that it's happened. Remember, it happened during the 400 years in between the two Testaments. The abomination that causes desolation essentially means that some pagan force, some evil, some darkness comes into the temple grounds and contaminates the temple such that it's no longer useful for the worship of God, no longer useful for sacrifice. Jesus says to the people, the next time you see that happen, and incidentally, the next time is not the last time it will happen. A lot of people would make the argument that it's happening right now in Jerusalem today. But the next time you see the temple grounds desolated in this way, get out of Dodge. Run for the hills. Because this terrible misery, this terrible persecution is coming. It's so bad that if God doesn't cut it short, all the people in the city would die. And then you're going to think, this must be the time that Jesus finally comes. Jesus says, by the way, 
that's not it either. says in, in verse 24, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus says, I'm not telling you when I'm coming. But I will tell you when I'm not coming, I'm not coming on the schedule set by any man. That's not going to happen. Now, we have had in every generation men who predict his coming. And one of them at some point is going to be right by accident. But none of them will be right on purpose. But Jesus makes a promise to us in this passage. He says, look, when I come, you are not going to miss it. <laughs> Don't worry yourself. Everybody's going to know. Everybody's going to see it. And then he says in uh, verse 36, but, this is that other question, about that day or hour, no one knows. Not the angels in heaven, not the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be the coming of the days of the, the, or the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, you can look at all the signs and you can understand maybe that the destruction of the temple is just around the corner and you need to pr take precautions, but the coming of the Lord will not be so predictable. That's why it is laughable when men and women in every age of the church have used their various divinations and predictions to tell us that Jesus is coming tomorrow. Jesus always might be coming tomorrow. But Jesus says only the Father knows the day and the hour, and he hasn't even told me. So if somebody tells you they know when it's happening, and you'll hear people tell you, oh, he's coming in our lifetime for sure. I've read the signs. What are they saying? They're saying that they can interpret the signs better than Jesus can interpret the signs. So they're wrong. The disciples will ask Jesus about this again in Acts chapter 1 and say, when, when, when is this happening? And Jesus will say, none of your business. It is not for you to know the Father's mind. Here's what's for you to know. You go be my witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Folks, in this age of waiting, that is the command. Jesus has asked us to be the city on the hill, to be the city of God, to, to shine that light to the world. Now, honestly, we cannot hope as mere mortals, we cannot hope to build anything like the glory that the glorious city will be.
whatever love we muster for each other, for our children, for our friends and neighbors, for this community, will pale in comparison to the love of Jesus in his own kingdom. Whatever peace we realize, whatever justice we champion, will be an empty husk compared to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But we keep working towards these things because this is what we believe in. And what we believe about the great city to come matters. It shapes everything that we do. What we believe about what righteousness and paradise are shapes who we are now. And so we keep working. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, if anybody gives as much as a cup of cold water to one who follows me, their reward in heaven will not be forgotten. What does that mean? It means that none of the great things that we do on earth will come to all that much because all we're really doing is building a placekeeper for the new heaven, the new earth, and the new city of God. But everything that we do, every treasure that we store up in heaven, God is using to build the great city that will descend to earth. Everything that we invest in kingdom does not go to waste. Jesus says, Matthew 45, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Oh, this is one of the great challenges of the Christian faith. As faithful servants, we work as if his return is imminent. That's what we do. So it's not for us to know the time, but it is for us to live as if it is the time. We predict his return out of our ignorance of the things of God, but we are wise if we live as if his return is tomorrow. Because that life is transformed in attitude, in action, in priority, Folks, if Jesus comes tomorrow, I don't want any of us to have anything that we have to explain away to Jesus. Let's leave it all on the table. We are not a people of this world. We're just a people in it. We're waiting for something greater. We're waiting for the city to be realized. We're waiting for the glory of the kingdom to be perfected. We're waiting for the world, for the kingdom, for the king who will be that perfection. He makes a way where there ain't no way, rises up from an empty grave. Ain't no sinner that he can save. Let me tell you about my Jesus. His love is strong and his grace is free. And the good news is I know that he do for you what he's done for me. Let me tell you about my Jesus. Let my Jesus change your life. Hallelujah.